hope you'll be able to be with us tonight. We're in one of the most beautiful books of the Bible, doing a flyover message of Esther tonight, and it's just an amazing book. So if you read it this afternoon and then you come tonight, you'll be all set. We're going to do Preacher's Pals tonight. In other words, we're going to ask all the children to come forward, and we're going to tell them a story. It's an amazing story, and uh, we're going to give them a treat. So it'll be fun tonight, so make sure you uh, come back and and, uh, be a part of that if you can. Uh, If you can't do that at all, it'll be on the podcast for you, but if you listen to that and you could come, shame on you, bad children. Um, Good to have you here this morning, and it's good to worship with you and sing and hear these beautiful instruments played for his glory and and uh share our burdens with one another and all that's kind of going on right now isn't it as we uh as we meet together in worship my uh grandfather liked horseradish how many of you guys like horseradish you like that larry i was like yeah you like that (laughs) i'm getting a witness on that today it's interesting um yeah, Grandpa would just have to jar and he would just take it out and put it on stuff. It was just amazing. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is like spiritual horseradish. <laughs> it is. It's like, whoa. And uh, I'm driving to church this morning. And I've been thinking, you know, this is a beautiful thing about getting to do what I do, um, is that a, a, a significant part of my week is I'm supposed to study the Bible carefully. So it's such a wonderful thing to do. And but the, the uh, part that goes along with that is um, deep conviction. And this morning driving to church just in tears thinking uh, of humble, how uh, humbling it is just to carefully study these four verses that Jesus taught. Very humbling. And maybe it will humble and help you too study them this morning. I once heard a preacher who is a very unusual guy from South Africa and um, came to a huge conference. There were thousands of people, maybe as many as eight or 10,000 people at the conference. He was the keynote speaker. And his message, he, he preached a message from somebody else. I mean, he literally did not preach a single word of his own Every word he took from Jesus, he stood up and he quoted the entire Sermon on the Mount. He did not say a single word of his own. The only thing he did was he he quoted the Sermon on the Mount with, with gravity and with emphasis. He would repeat certain phrases. At the end of his message... I, uh, even though there were thousands of people there, there was this enormous urge just to, for everybody, he even asked them to go forward, but there was, this, there was this sense, and people started to go forward. And I think the leaders at the time felt like that would be such a disruption that they quickly introduced another song and they moved on, and that might have been the best thing to do, it might have not have been. But I'm just saying that this faithful preacher quoted the Sermon on the Mount and brought thousands of people to conviction, this is a powerful teaching of of Jesus. And uh, we're going to read from chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 in a moment. We'll stand in a moment and we'll do that and then we'll pray. But 
this is the desire that, that I would have, that, that we would hear from Jesus today, that we would hear from him. And uh, so let's stand together and let's read. I'll, I'll read aloud uh, from uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verses 1 through 4. We're talking here, this, you'll see this section is about a special kind of giving, in particular giving to people in need. And it's the words of Jesus in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 and verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Father in heaven, uh, Give us that help that you have promised to us who ask for it to understand your word and, and to teach your word so that we would tremble at your word and we would be able to enjoy the rewards you've promised us. So help us, Lord, and we just listen to your voice and pray that you'd help us as we speak and speak truth about your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And be seated, please. The Sermon on the Mount is, is meant, I believe, to do a number of things. Obviously, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching about a lot of different things, what he expects true righteousness to look like. You could use the Sermon on the Mount as a template for your life, and you could say, these are the kind of things God wants me to think and do, and this is how he wants me to behave. And it wouldn't be inappropriate to use it like that. I think that's appropriate. Just looking, and this is what Jesus said, so this is what Jesus said is right, and this is what I ought to try to do. We should do that. But I don't believe at all that that's the primary purpose in Jesus' message, the Sermon on the Mount. Even though that's a secondary thing and an important one. And any thoughtful Christian, if Jesus said it, I want it to characterize my life. If Jesus said it, I want to do it. But if you read it carefully, it is horseradish for the soul. It's impossible. The, the more carefully you study, the more you'll be convinced that Jesus is calling on people to do something that is just humanly impossible and can't be done unless He intervenes, and He does, with the righteousness of Christ, the story of the gospel or the cross and salvation, and then with the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us, the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us would want to do these things or could do these things if it wasn't for the righteousness of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I just believe that Jesus is teaching to correct false ideas of like self-righteousness, tell the people what real righteousness is, and drive us to our knees so that we would just be saved and so that we would... would sign up for the course of sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's just so wonderful. Jesus does what very few pastors have the chutzpah to do. He will, he, will, he will preach or tell a story, and then he will just walk away. 
It's almost like incomplete truths in order to stimulate people to seek more truth. We rarely do that. We try to tie up all the loose ends for people and make everything really clear. Jesus just was not obsessed with that. And he would often give open-ended messages or open-ended stories. And then, you know, the disciples would scurry and say, what did you mean by that? And he would say, in essence, you know, it's good you ask. You have ears to hear, so I'm going to tell you what that meant. Which means there are lots of people who didn't understand what he meant. And it didn't seem to bother him. That's the way he did it. And the Sermon on the Mount is really like that. He, he lays a burden on People so heavy, it's a mercy that he does this because if you're self-righteous, you're depending on your own righteousness, then you're going to hell. And there is a hell. I don't know if you've been reading lately, there people aren't sure there's a hell, but Jesus said there was, so I'm going to stick with him. But, but, but what's interesting is if, you're, if you are depending on self-righteousness, then you're not going to go to heaven. So wouldn't it be a mercy for him to just kind of obliterate our self-righteousness, just blow our self-righteousness completely out of the water so that we wouldn't have false hope and find ourselves under God's judgment when the end comes, but instead to find ourselves with his smile and his reward. And this is exactly what he says. You want a reward? Really, this passage is about who do you want a reward from, people or God? And then he gives three secret disciplines which characterize the lives of people who really have true righteousness, giving and prayer and fasting. And so it's really a, it's, it's fascinating, too, to see the symmetry in Jesus when he preached. The message may have sounded, um, it may have sounded as he said it. And I don't believe that we have all of the message that he preached here because when you study the synoptic gospels, the other gospels, you have different pieces here. And I believe you have a summary. Of course, you would expect me to say that because if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount top to bottom, it's not that long. So I like to believe that Jesus preached a lot longer than it appears he preached here for reasons that are self-serving. I'm confident that he did and that the people were eager to hear him. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, he's not me. If Jesus were talking today, we'd cancel lunch, wouldn't we? And he's not. It's me. <laughs> so I understand. I'm not trying to be, you know, not trying to get, you know, use cheap tactics to cut into your lunch hour. But it, Jesus speaking here. It's interesting that though you may have listened to him and you may listening to him have, uh, I think, been shocked. I think there's a lot of shocking elements here. Things you would have expected that he just keeps boom, 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 blowing them out of the water. Makes it horseradish. There's this symmetry. There's, this orra- there's an arrangement here. And there's an arrangement of the book of Matthew that's amazing. And there's the arrangement of the Sermon on the Mount that's amazing. And it's keyed, if you will, on this idea of true righteousness. I'm going to kind of do this quick if, quickly if I can. Early in the book in Matthew, Matthew is written by a guy who is... He, he's been, he kind of got scraped out of the bottom of the barrel. Matthew Levi is a tax collector. He's a publican. The book is written to Jewish people in particular by a publican. Jewish people hate these people. So it's kind of ironic. The first character he introduces after, the first character he introduces to these people who are Jewish and self-righteous is a guy whose name is Joseph, 
who looks really righteous. He's doing a bunch of righteous things, but he immediately finds himself in a real dilemma. Do you remember this? Am I going to be righteous before the people that are expecting this righteousness of me? Are I going to marry this girl that to other people appears to be immoral? She's pregnant and we're not married. So now he has to decide if he's going to look righteous or if he's going to be righteous. Isn't that amazing how Matthew does this and how the Holy Spirit does this? This is the first character that services, and he's a typical character, so that the people who are looking at what is true righteousness have this, this guy's got what they want. He's seen as righteous. And when you get to chapter, you have the synopsis of the Sermon on the Mount there, in chapters 5 through the, the Beatitudes and the Similitudes, and then you have the first section that's introduced in, chap, in chapter 5 and verse 20 with this phrase that I keep repeating, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he introduces that section. When he gets to section, and then six different um, he uses the formula, you have heard that it's been said by them of old, but I say to you, and he uses this six times after chapter 5 and verse 20 where he talks about righteousness. He gives six different illustrations, and we've just preached our way through that. Now he's going to go to a new section in chapter 6 and verse 1. He's going to give three examples of what real righteousness looks like, but he's going to go back and introduce them again by reintroducing this idea of righteousness for at least the third time. He introduces it with the character of Joseph early on. He introduces it in chapter 5 and verse 20 very directly and then goes into that six different sections. Now he's going to introduce it again. So he, if I can say this with great reverence, like a dog with a bone, he's going after it here. A horseradish for the soul. He wants us to understand, he wants us to reject self-righteousness, and he wants us to experience the righteousness of Christ. And so he's going after things that he expects people to do. He expects us to give to the poor. He expects us to pray. He assumes we're going to do that. And he assumes that we're going to fast. That's what righteous people do. But their motives, what are their motives? And so that's why I believe in, their, you know, textual critics, if you will, can arm wrestle over this. But in chapter 6 and verse 1, some of the manuscripts use the term that's used in verse 2 for uh, charitable deeds. But other manuscripts use a term that's used throughout the book for righteousness. And so I really do believe that those, that's correct, and again, you know, students of the Bible that have a high regard for the Bible and a high regard for the Bible, are, they're going to they're, they're gonna have their arguments about that. But you have this term in verse 1. What, here, let me clarify this so you understand what I'm saying. Chapter 6 and verse 1, I think, kind of stands alone as an introduction to these three things that are coming after it. it, doesn't, it, it it's not a part of 1 through 4. It's an introduction to 1 through, I think, 18. Get it? Because he's going to say righteous deeds, I believe. He's saying righteous deeds. So here's what, here's what he's saying. I believe what Jesus is saying is, look at verse 1. Take heed that you do not do your righteousness before men, to be seen by men. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. I want you to notice that that phrase, no reward from your Father in, which is in heaven, is repeated then three times with each of these three acts of righteousness. I want you to see that verses 2 through 4 is about giving before God, giving especially to the needy before God. 
And chapter, I said chapter, but you know I meant verses 2 through 4. Verses 5 through 15 then are about praying before God. And verses 16 through 18 are about our fasting before God. It's talking about giving and praying and fasting secretly with an awareness that God is the one who's watching and God is the one who's rewarding. So verse 1 is the introduction to this section. It's more general. Uh, in, In these three sections, I want you to notice some things that are alike. This is pretty interesting stuff, I think. What, are, what are, of the three sections, you see the symmetry or the arrangement or the order and the logical progression of Jesus' sermon in this. And the way the Spirit had Matthew organize it, it's really interesting. Because you have things that are alike. You want to do this in the Bible. When you study the Bible, ask yourself, what are the contrasts? What's different and what's alike? And when you do that, you, you kind of mind truth out. It's like very interesting. At, at first, it's just your brain, and then it kind of drops into your soul. And then pretty soon, you're like on your knees, and you realize that God has spoken to you in this way. So what is it that, that we see that's alike? Each section assumes a type of righteousness. Each section assumes, because it says, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, Jesus assumed that his followers that were righteous would do these things, that they would give to the poor, that they would pray secretly, and that they would fast. This is assumed. These are, these are the things that are similar. Here's another one. Each section mentions a perversion of that righteousness, doing it with the wrong motives before men. In each section it says that. Notice he, uh, in, in, this would be in verse Two, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do. And this is the phrase that he uses over and over again, as the hypocrites. Later on, chapter 23, we're going to see he's referring to Pharisees here, as if we didn't know. Chapter, verse 5, in the prayer he says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. They like to pray standing in the street corners so they would be seen, right? And then you have this repeated phrase. The phrase is repeated there also in verse 7, or a similar phrase, vain repetition like the heathen. But then again in verse 16, it's about fasting, and he's saying it there again. He says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who fast with a sad countenance and disfigure their faces. In other words, I'm fasting, and I have a a sign hanging around my neck. Look at what a wonderful guy I am. I'm fasting, you know. So if you've ever fasted, you know that that is a serious temptation, And so here you have things that, just like every other one of these sections, if you are honest before God and you don't look next to you on the pew, you just look within your heart, the Spirit of God is going to plow the soil of your heart. If you you say that these things don't touch you, I fear that you are in the grip of self-righteousness and that you've lowered God's standards so that you can keep them and you've got a surprise coming in the end you don't want So it would be good for us to tremble before his word and just hear this as he speaks. You have each section then also saying they have their reward. In each one of these sections, Jesus says, Assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. That's all the reward they're going to get. If you pray, if you give so people will see you, that's all the reward you're going to get, that people see you. you. If you pray so that people consider you a prayerful person, then you've got your reward from them. And if you fast to be seen by people, 
then you have your reward. You have no reward from me. And then that's the other thing that he promises, and this should be the emphasis in our hearts. There is a promise in each of these sections from God. Each section promises a reward from the Father who sees in secret. And the, and the reason we know these are all tied together is the phrases he uses are exactly the same. It's kind of like a, 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 a arrangement, a literary device that he's using. Verse 4, your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Verse 6, your father who sees in secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And then about fasting in verse 18, you, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I mean, I'm sure I've convinced you that these are three things that stand together and they're to be seen together. These are three examples of self-righteousness that can be turned you know, to true righteousness. So question is, do you do righteous acts? Do you? Do you? Do you give? In the Bible, we have, in the New Testament, we have examples of giving, two general sections of giving. You have giving to the local church, like 1 Corinthians 16, first day of the week, we lay by a portion of our giving and we give to the local church. But a lot of the material in the Bible about giving is giving to needs. That can happen through the local church or it can be directly saint to saint. Often does to the local church, often directly saint to saint or indirectly, secretly, it ends up in the hands of those who have need and they don't know where it came from. Do you do this? Question number one. Question number two is, why? if you do do this, why do you do this? That's what Jesus is saying. Some of us, like, we strike out on the first pitch. We foul out on the first pitch. We don't do this. We don't, we don't give. We don't pray. And we don't fast. Some of us, we give and we pray and we fast, but do we do it but for what reason? You know, that, is, that, is that just, I, don't, I can't imagine not being convicted by that. Maybe I'm just telling something about myself I shouldn't be telling you. But these are convicting things. How do you know that you know that you know that what you give and when you pray and when you fast, that your motives are pure? Does this just not reduce all of us to humility, to tremble before the Lord? I, I can't imagine it not bringing humility to anybody. God, did I, was that all for you? Was there any self-glory in that? Did I forfeit my eternal reward because I let people know what I did because I bathed in the sunlight of that, you know, that, that admiration that somebody gave me? Jesus' message just goes to the heart, doesn't it? Why do you do what you do? So let's get to know the heart of God about doing righteousness, and I have, uh, after, after having said all of that, um, I want you to see four truths here that I think will help you to understand uh, this passage and will help, help us uh, allow the, the, this, the word that Jesus gave to be contemporary to our own hearts and our own souls. This is about giving that God rewards. Notice God loves a giving heart. In chapter 6, verse 2, Therefore, when you... Do a charitable deed. He doesn't say not to do them. I mean, he assumes you're going to do charitable deeds. You're going to give. He loves that. That's who God is. God is generous. So obviously, if you're godly, you're generous. He's a giver. He's always giving. Are you basically a giver or are you basically a taker? Don't answer too quickly. I, I, I've, I've read a lot of books on pastoral calling. This is one of those illustrations maybe I'll regret, but here we go. 
I've read a lot of books on pastoral work, pastoral calling, go calling, you know, and over, the, over my lifetime, I've done this all my life. My dad did, and I have. And I have been to lots of different homes and call on people, and it is so common. It doesn't always happen, and it shouldn't always happen, and don't misunderstand. But people, they want to bless you, you know. They'll, they'll like, you know, I remember one morning, at Lewis, I was walking out of the house, and I said to Lois, I could sure use some banana nut bread today. Now, please don't make me any banana nut bread. Look at me. I don't need any now. But I mean, but anyway, I, I, I could use some banana nut bread today. My wife says to me, because she's very thoughtful, she says, it's like I told you before, if you get me the stuff, I will make you banana nut bread. And I'm like, yeah, but I never remember. Can't you just, she goes, you know the rules. I'm like, okay. And I'm not going to do that. She knows that's her little, you know, escape clause there, you know. So that morning I go out calling and I call on Bernadine. Guy, come on precious old older lady in the church a widow and i just drive up to her little neat little trailer there and i knock on the door and she opens the door and she's like pastor hurry in excuse me i got to get my banana nut bread out of the oven and i'm like jesus loves me this i know because wherever i go people give me banana nut bread and coffee with you know butter on the top it's like what a tough it's a tough job but somebody has to do it you know so I go and I talk to Bernadine. She never did give me any of it. It was for somebody else. And I'm like there for like six hours. You know, not really. I was there for a while. Like after a while, I go, well, I better, go. you know, when you get old, you forget stuff. I thought maybe she's slipping, you know. And I'm like, well, I got to go now. She goes, well, thanks for stopping by. I'm like, it's been nice to be here. You know, I kind of want to go, wow, that smells really good. But I'm not, you know, I'm I'm cooler than that. So I was like, and I remember just driving away thinking, that was cruel. What was that about, you know? Just laughing about that. Anyway, you do often, though, people will give you garden produce or do nice things for you, and it's amazing the nice things people have done for me. Well, the other day, I just happened to pick up this book about pastoral calling. I was reading it, and something just hit me, and it was so convicting. Here's what the guy said. I kind of hadn't thought of this before. In the book, he says, when you go calling people, if you can, try to think of a gift to bring them. And to be honest, I thought, for a lot of my life, I have been given stuff from people when I call on them. Now, I don't know if you uncomfortable if I call on you, <laughs> but it just was convicting to me. So can I ask you to ask yourself the same question? Are you, aren't we, don't we love people to give us stuff and be nice to us and be good to us? And, but are we, are we basically getters or are we basically givers? Jesus, God is a giver. He's always giving. He's generous. He wants us to be generous people. Psalm 112. Here we go into the Bible. Let me give you some scriptures on this, and you're going to have to fasten your seatbelt because we're flying here. Here we go. Uh, Psalm 112.9. He's dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. Daniel 4.27. He says, Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. He's telling the king, If you want to be righteous, be a giver. Proverbs 19.17 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. And Isaiah 58 is talking about the fasting God wants. He wants people to, to deal their bread to the poor. 
He's saying, this is what I want from you. Don't, don't, don't act all righteous over here fasting so people can see you. Just give to people who have needs around you. Acts chapter 9 and verse 36, Tabitha. Remember her Dorcas in the Bible from Joppa, certain disciple? She, her, she, uh, when she, she was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. And you remember the story about her if you read it. It's a great story of the Bible. Cornelius, before he was even saved, as he was being drawn to the Lord, he was a person full of good works, a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed to God always, chapter 10, verse 31, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. That's an interesting passage. It's like, here's one of the reasons I saved you. It's like, yeah, I, stir, you, I could see that I stirred up your heart to give alms, and then I sent you a gospel preacher, and you got to say, well, you, that's interesting. Because, you know, you want to tell a lost person, hey, don't give money here. It's not going to earn your way into heaven. Well, that's true. But it might be evidence that they're on their way to listening to the gospel, a person that has that reverence for the things of God. Cornelius was that way. In other words, God's a generous person, and he wants his people to be generous and givers and look around for people who have needs and share their stuff and sell stuff and give it to other people and sh- you know, share what you have and, 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 and be a generous tipper when you go to a restaurant. You know, nobody who works at a restaurant makes lots of money, I don't think. Right? I mean, you wouldn't be working there if you had a lot of money. Because they don't pay, you know, so if you, you're generous when you tip, you pray for your meal, and then you stiff the waitress. It's like, man, tell them you're a Buddhist. Don't do that, you know. You know, go, tell them you're Mormon. Don't tell them you're Baptist. If you're going to tell them you're Baptist and witness and leave a generous tip or stay home. Second Corinthians 9, 6-9, this I say, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Let each one give as, as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you always, having all sufficiency for all things, may have an abundance through every good work. This is the way God is. Verse 9, it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. God is generous, you be generous. God loves a giving heart. That's just true. 1 Timothy 6 talks to wealthy people, and on a world scale, that's all of us today. In the eyes of God, as he looks down on the world, you and I have abundance of wealth. Let them do good and be rich in good works and ready to give and willing to share. We're supposed to be givers. Philemon 1.7, we, we have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints are refreshed by you. Because he gave. Hebrews 13.16 says, don't be... Don't, don't forget to do good and share, and because with such sacrifices, God is well-pleased. You know the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that God is a giver, and he's generous and good, and he just pours out good gifts all the time, and he wants us to be like that. But we're not naturally givers. We're naturally stingy and selfish. That's true. There was a professor who was in upstate New York, and he loved to watch birds. He fed birds outside his office window. He, he set up a, a place to feed birds, and three cardinals, three cardinals came twice a day all winter long, and he watched that they had this routine that they repeated a ritual, three of them. He noticed that one of them had a useless, broken beak, And so the other two would get sunflower seeds, break the hulls, and hand the inside to the other one. They fed the other one all winter long. He watched that every morning and every afternoon. And I think when our Father, 
who himself is a generous, giving, continually, always giving and generous, he sees that we break the seed and share the meat with other people. And we recognize the weakness of somebody else or the difficulty that they're in. And in his name we quietly give. That's pleasing to him. Jesus expects that that's the way his followers will be. He loves a giving heart, but he hates a false heart. He hates a hypocritical heart. That's why he says, don't... Don't sound a trumpet before you when you're giving a gift. Hey, I'm here to give a gift. Aren't I, Mr. Wonderful? <laughs> it's like, put my name on that one, you know? You're, think of it like this. Are you living for the pleasure of God's smile or the admiration of people? You get it's one or the other. Uh, Matthew 23, Jesus said, All their works they do to be seen by men. All their works they do to be seen by men. God hates that. He rejects that. A false, a hypocritical heart. And there you have uh, that picture of the actor, like a hypocrite, like an actor, like a person playing acting. He knows the secrets of our heart. This is implied and stated here. He knows the secrets of our heart. He knows our motives when we give. This is sobering. This should make us tremble. This should drive us to be saved and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. When you realize, why did I do what I did? Did I do that with pure motive? I'm not sure. God, you know. You know the secret of my heart. Reveal the secret of my heart to me so that what I do, I do for, for the right reasons. This is what he's saying. And God, he, he knows the secrets. Listen to what some scriptures say on this. In Luke 16, 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. In Jeremiah 17, 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, he says. And I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. I search the heart. God says in Jeremiah 23, 24, Can anyone hide himself in a secret place and I will not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? He says, I, I see everything and I know what's inside your heart. I know your motives. That's, again, this drives us to our knees. That's what makes this message horseradish, right? Hebrews 4 and verse 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And Revelation 2 and verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one according to your works. It's what your Sunday school teacher told you. God sees and he knows everything, even the secrets of our own hearts, even though we don't know the secrets of our hearts. He knows the secrets of our hearts. So he loves a giving heart, he hates a false heart, and he knows the secrets of our heart. Does this not make you want to go to the Calvary really fast? Doesn't this make you want to be saved if you're not? And throw yourself on His mercy? Because you're hopeless. You cannot. If He knows the secrets of your heart, even a lot of... There are good people who come to the end of their life and their, their life was full of religion. And God's going to say, I saw through all of that religion. Man, you wasted your life. That's scary. That could be me. That could be you. That's frightening stuff. That should make us tremble at His word. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this masterful, well, he actually was this collection of messages on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and they're just full of insight. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, I heard him say, and this is what made me buy this book. Of course, it's not, you know, it's not hard to get me to buy a book. But I heard Warren Wiersbe say, when I got this book, I read it on my knees. So I'm like, okay, I think I might want to read that book. And I have really worn out that book. There, the collection of D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous English pastor, who died, I think, in 1969, his collection of messages on this. Here's what he says 
his emphasis is he sees it, and, and, and it's, it's certainly borne out by the text here, is that we should live in such a way that we're consciously aware that God sees what we do. And when we live that way, when we, know, when we think consciously that God knows the secrets of our hearts, then that's going to be the, the, the greatest motivation for us to live right, because God is seeing secretly. And here's how he puts this. Um, The great principle of revival is the manifest presence of God, a fresh awareness that everything we do, we do before God. God knows the secrets of our hearts. He sees the secrets of our hearts. He understands the secrets of our hearts, and He rewards the secrets of our hearts. He said, I sometimes feel that there is no better way of living or trying to live the holy, sanctified life than just to be constantly reminding ourselves of that. When we wake up in the morning, we should immediately remind ourselves and recollect that we are in the presence of God. It is not a bad thing to say to ourselves before we go any further throughout the whole of this day, everything I do and say and attempt and think and imagine is going to be done under the eye of God. He is going to be with me. He sees everything. He knows everything. There's nothing I can do or attempt, but God is fully aware of it. Thou, God, seest me. That would revolutionize our lives if we always did that. God knows the secrets. This is why we want to do secret giving. That sometimes conscientiously secret that nobody knows or can know because it confirms to our hearts this is for the Lord. They say that, somebody said Charles Spurgeon and his wife were stingy. That's what they said. And here was the evidence. They said they have a prosperous home, and you know he was a well-known pastor of a large, large, huge monster of a church, but he had chickens that laid eggs, and he, would, he and his wife would sell the eggs to their best friends and family. When they would come over, they would not give them the eggs. They would sell the eggs. So people said, they're stingy. And it was revealed after their death that the reason they sold the eggs was because there were four or five widows of pastors that they supported with the sale of the eggs. So they were forcing people to give, pay for the eggs, so that they could give the money away. But nobody knew it until after they died. And that might be one of the reasons why, when you read about a Spurgeon you read such power was on his life because he was real and his wife, they were real and they, they gave secretly. There's a fourth and, and a final thing for you to see. God rewards the faithful heart. And over and over again, he says this. He says there in verse 4, your father who sees his secret will reward, will reward you. Jesus, from the very outset of his ministry, continually appealed to people to live for this eternal reward. We, we, it's not a disinterested service. We... We do want a reward. It, we're, this, is, this is woven into us. This is in our, our, our personality. This is in our personhood. We, we desire a reward. This is, God knew he made us this way. The, the issue is not do we, do we work, do we do what we do so that we'll be rewarded. No, that's not the issue. The issue is do I do what I do so that I get an immediate reward from the praise of men or do I do what I do so that I get a deferred award from the praise of God and for his praise? That's the issue here. This is the issue Jesus is making of it. John 5.44 How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not receive the honor that comes only from God? Matthew 10.41 He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet receives a prophet's reward. This is why we should clamor over blessing missionaries. I'm telling you, that's the best kept secret in the world. Give something for a missionary. Do something for a missionary. 
Amen, Sue? Are you with me on this? Yes. Sorry, Sue. That was, that was just embarrassing, wasn't it? Yeah. Find a missionary somewhere. You know? Sue's right with us today, so you can be, take her out for lunch. She didn't pay me to say that. But find somebody serving God and bless them. Have them over. Be a, be a help to them. Why? Because you're smart. And you know that Jesus says, if you do that, I'll reward you in heaven. That's interesting. That's a good deal. People don't cash in on that. Why not? That's a great idea. Jesus said it's a promise. Jesus said, Matthew 10, 41. He receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. Get it? In other words, and Sue, since I already embarrassed you, Sue's going to want to serve in Durban, South Africa. She's going, heading to Durban, South Africa. And she wants to help there. Help them get a... Help, Help them win souls, teach young people, young ladies in particular. Uh, help build that church, okay? If that church thrives and it grows and it continues, then there's going to be people in heaven because of that. There will be young teenage girls that are in Durban, South Africa, that, that Sue will touch their hearts, nobody else will. That's the way God works. If, if she's going to get a reward in heaven for that if her motives are pure, you help her, God says, here's the deal. If she gets a reward and you help her, I give you the same reward. That's a pretty good deal, wouldn't you agree? You never saw that before, did you? I know. I'm the first person who ever showed you that. I'm just kidding. There it is in God's word. You have That's a great deal. And Hebrews 6 and verse 10 says, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. And Hebrews 11:26 says, Moses esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the riches of Egypt because he was looking to receive a reward in heaven. And Second John 1, 8 says, Look to yourselves that you do not lose those things you work for so that you receive a full reward. Over, and I could read tons more passages, over and over and over again, Jesus promises a reward in heaven, a deferred reward. A wealthy man one time made his sons work in the oil fields. He said, I don't want my sons to have this wealth and privilege without understanding where it comes from. And I want them. So they would work in these oil fields. So while they were working in the oil fields, the other laborers knew they were, they were wealthy, privileged young men. They're eating lunch and they say, how do you like the work? And the young men would say, we, we enjoy it. It's, it's invigorating. And the guys that were working with them that were poor would say, you know why that is? The reason you can say it is because you know you have better things to come. That's why. And this is what Jesus has told us. Yes, we may suffer, and it may be difficult, and it may be hard to understand. And you look across the street, and somebody who rejects Jesus is not the one who has cancer. somebody who received him. Why is that? Lady uh, uh, Mary Gardner, working in Togo, she is a Bible translator with uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators. 22 years of service in a remote village in Togo so that she can translate the Bible to the language of the people so they know of the Lord. She decided recently that she would study Hebrew. So she's from Scotland. She went to Jerusalem to study Hebrew. And she's learning Hebrew. But on Wednesday morning when that bomb exploded at the bus station, she was the only one who died. So you ask yourself the question, God, of all the people... Why this one solid evangelical Christian that's trying to learn to translate the Bible for these people? Why, God, did you let her die? And you cannot understand that. You cannot make sense of that unless the Bible is true and there is a great reward. And if we could see what Mary is doing this morning, we wouldn't have that question in our mind at all. Do we live with that reward in mind? That's the question. 
So here's some conclusions. Live and give before God, aware of his presence, because he sees. And live and give with the real reward in mind all the time, because God rewards. And decide whose reward you want, because you can't have both. You have a reward from the Lord, or you have the praise of men. You get, and, and here's the thing. If you continually live for the praise of men, that's evidence that you don't have genuine righteousness. So if you find yourself seduced by the praise of men, then again, consider whether or not you're saved at all. And if you are, so this is back, this is something we're going to say over and over again. You've heard it a bunch of times. I'll say it a bunch more, not today, but later. One, these truths should drive us to Calvary, to the cross, and to the gospel for salvation because we are not people who plead our own righteousness, but we are people who live under the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We depend on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We plead the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We sing about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And yes, Jesus wants us to do these things. Yes, he wants these qualities in us. But they can't be done unless the Holy Spirit empowers us to do them. Should we try? Absolutely. Recognizing that without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're still going to fail. So, when Jesus knelt down and he put your face in his hands... And he said, listen to me, did you do that today? The man I was talking about, his name, at the beginning of the message that preached uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, his name was Keith Daniels. Keith was at a conference in Indianapolis a number of years ago, and we were there. And uh, he's kind of harsh, and sh- kind of reminds me of what maybe Charles Finney would be like. He kind of has like, it's like you, you kind of want to give him a wide berth. You know, he's, he's, not, he's not funny. He's... Uh, he, he's, not, he's not a feel-good kind of a preacher. It's okay sometimes if you make people feel good, but he's just not gifted that way. So he would be preaching, he would like, you're like, stop doing that, you know, don't, don't knock on the pulpit anymore. And I was a little nervous. I'm, like, I'm getting good out of this guy because he preaches the Bible. It's just full of scripture, but he's kind of irritating, you know. And so I was a little nervous about my kids. Are they... You know, are they are they gonna reject this guy? And and uh, I thought about that. I prayed about it. And I thought, well, you know, it's he's given a lot of the word, you know. And we went home. We went back home. We were living in Flint at the time, and uh, went home there. And and I was uh, working at the front desk because we we're running that hotel. So I'm working at the front desk, and Chuck comes to me and he says to me, "Hey, Dad, what's wrong with Heidi?" I'm like, "What do you mean?" He says, something is wrong with Heidi. I said, well, why do you say that? He said, she's crying. What's she crying about? I don't know. She asked me to come in a room, and she asked forgiveness for some things. She treated me and stuff, and when I left, she was still crying. Like, really? That sounded interesting to me. (laughs) So I went upstairs and I went into Heidi's room, and she's just softly weeping in her bed. I said, what is it, Heidi? I feel so guilty. I feel so selfish. God's just kind of crushed me about that. And I've said things to my brothers and sisters that weren't right. I just feel guilty. You know, I didn't say to her, don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty. I didn't say that. I was glad. <laughs> I think that's good. This is a good thing. 
God is at work in our heart. That God used that preacher's Bible message to bring conviction to her, to make her tremble before the Word. How long has it been since you heard the Word of God or you read the Word of God and you trembled when you heard it and you went home in your bed and you began to weep and you began to think of the sin that's in your life and the people that you've hurt and the deeds that you've done for the wrong motives and it drove you to Christ and to, the, and to Calvary and to the Spirit. How long has it been? I, if you're like I am, and I think a lot of you are, you need help right now. Amen? You need help. Take your hymn books and let's sing a response to the Lord. 565 in the hymn book is a, is a hymn that we, we, we use to express our need to the Lord. And perhaps it will help you to sing it to the Lord. 565. Let's sing in closing, I need thee every hour. Stand, will you?